and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book, Amount of Works, at the Farm's official store, which is at eFarmPodcast. That is eFarmPodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive gifts and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the Farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. Okay, folks, today's guest is making his maiden appearance on the farm. He is a magazine writer for such publications as Shindig and Total Movie back in the 2000s, in addition to various sleazy horror rags and zines. He's also a musician slash band leader, formerly of Detroit Satirists, Electric Six, and the Octopus Asuna Rock Outfit on Rise Above Records, which is a glorious record label, I will add. More recently, he's been doing reviews of horror movies on Instagram as at Plastic Cheapies. Folks, I give you guys Jay Freziato. Jay, thank you so much for dropping by this evening, sir. Thanks for having me, Stephen. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. So I know a lot of folks have been missing the Tuna Club or the Albacore series, whichever you want to go by. This guy is one of them. With all the other projects I've been working on over the summer, I just didn't have time to do the research that series warrants. But slowly but surely, I'm clearing my plate off and I'm starting to get back into Hollywood research. First up is good old Stanley Kubrick, who's going to be the subject of my Strange Reality 2023 presentation. That thing is going to be absolutely bomb, by the way. I am already just uh, blown away by some of the stuff I've been, connections I've been making on Kubrick. It's it's going to be really fun. And yes, I'm going to do it easily an hour plus present. Well, they'll only let me do an hour. It, would, it could easily be two or three hours and I would not get into the freaking moon landing. So ha. Anyway, but after that, I'm hoping to delve headlong into the Albacore mysteries yet again. But for the time being, I thought everyone may enjoy an exploration of a franchise closely related to the Albacore mysteries. It's a little show called Twin Peaks. Some of you may have heard of it. It was created by a certain David Lynch, who we've talked a bit about on the farm from time to time, and the criminally overlooked Mark Frost as well, because you always need to make sure you emphasize Mark Frost's role in Twin Peaks. It does not get enough of that. Jay here is a huge Twin Peaks devotee, and he's done some interesting research in the esoteric side of the franchise. It covers everything from the Kennedy and Manson links to the, fran to the franchise up to its possible allusions to the Manhattan Project and Ritual Sacrifice. So I love me a good Twin Peaks discussion, and I have no doubt this will prove compelling. So on that note, let us start the show. <laughs>
Okay, Jay, let's start off by unpacking what you perceive as some of the influences on Twin Peaks. One is the connection to Marilyn Monroe and the Kennedys. Marilyn Monroe gets referenced in a lot of Lynch's work, but I'm curious to hear how you relate it to the Kennedys and Twin Peaks. Well, you know, uh, as far as like the history of uh, Frost and Lynch's collaboration goes, they, as far as I know, met immediately after uh, Blue Velvet. And around 1986, 1987, they started working on a trio of uh, different uh, projects. One of which uh, is pretty famous. It's called, it was gonna be called One Saliva Bubble, which was like a comedy starring Steve Martin. And it's a really weird script. I read it years ago. If I recall correctly, there's something about like floating cows or flying cows or something like that. So there was that, which obviously never got produced. There was another thing they were talking about doing, which was going to be called the Lemurians, which was funnily enough, a story of detectives traveling the country looking for aliens, which I think is really funny given the fact that X-Files was a pretty blatant cannibalization of that aspect of Twin Peaks. And the third thing that they were working on was a, they had optioned, the rights to a book by an author named Anthony Summers. And the book was called Goddess. And it was apparently a pretty warm, sympathetic look at, you know, the life and death of Marilyn Monroe. Um, so they purchased that. And I have to admit, I haven't read the book, but it apparently goes pretty far into confirming the theories that Marilyn was, you know, romantically linked with Robert and John Kennedy. Um, and I apparently posits the theory that RFK uh, was involved in her demise in some way. And so I guess what we know is that in 1987, they optioned this book. There's a draft of it dated November, 1987. Summers confirms that Frost visited him in Ireland to look firsthand at all of his research documentation. And then according to Summers, he's like, yeah, they, he came out, he looked at all my research and took some copies of some stuff. And then I never heard another word. And the next thing that I was aware was that Lynch and Frost were working on what was then called Northwest Passage, which obviously then became Twin Peaks. So that connection is, I suppose, tenuous until you start looking at all the similarities, first of all, between the Laura Palmer character, who's obviously murdered at the beginning of Twin Peaks, and Marilyn Monroe herself, you know, um, both blonde on the, on the most surface level, but both had issues with drugs, both had mothers who were mentally unstable, uh, both had very public personas which were undercut in tragic ways by a very different secret personal life. Um, and then it kind of just goes from there. There's uh, the fact that I believe the first or the first, the, the first super famous Marilyn Monroe uh, photo shoot has her posed in front of red velvet curtains. 
Likewise, there's the Flesh World magazine in Twin Peaks that they dig up and they find out that Laura Palmer was soliciting you know, for sex work via this magazine. And if my memory serves, the image of her that appears in it also has her in front of red velvet curtains. Obviously, red curtains have a lot to do with tons of the imagery in Twin Peaks. So there's all of that. There's also the fact that Monroe, like Laura, kept a secret diary right down to the clasp and key. And according to friends of hers, as much as that's a corroboration, they claimed that shortly before her death, she told them she was going to call a press conference and reveal certain things in the diary, which definitely sort of resonates with what happened with uh, Laura Palmer's character in the, in the show. Um, so all of this stuff, one would assume, went into Frost and Lynch's version of the, the, of the Marilyn Monroe story, which they were going to call Venus Descending. Uh, and they were going to rename in the script. They were, it was very thinly veiled, apparently. Like it was really obvious who the Marilyn Monroe character was and who the Robert Kennedy and the John Kennedy characters were. But uh, the name that they had come up with for the Marilyn Monroe character is uh, Rosalind Ramsey, which just as a weird side note, Rosalind Ramsey uh, rings pretty closely to the fact that the big meeting spot in Twin Peaks is called the Double R Diner. And it's run by Norma Jennings, which sounds a hell of a lot like Norma Jean. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff going on in there. Um, similarly, and the thing that I think is pretty striking is that the Ben and Jerry Horn characters, aside from being an odd reference to an ice cream company, uh, if you recall in the show, their behavior when they're together is very like, almost like outlandishly uh, teenaged. And it turns out Dean Martin's wife, Jean Martin, in her autobiography claims that the Kennedy brothers' behavior when they were together was, quote, very high schoolish and very sophomoric. Uh, ben Horn does compare himself to JFK at some point in the original two se uh, seasons of the show. And uh, Jerry is a lawyer, which kind of lines up with Robert Kennedy's background as, you know, uh, in, in, in federal law and whatnot. So it's all, I don't think, too much of a stretch to think that the, the Northwest Passage project emerged to some extent, at least, out of this uh, Venus Descending adaptation of Anthony Summers' uh, uh, Marilyn Monroe book, Goddess. Yeah, no, I definitely think that uh, with the Horn brothers, they were um, certainly meant to be parallels drawn between them and the Kennedy brothers. As you said, I know there's the, I think he also even, it's some comment in one of the, it might be the second season where he says something like when JFK went to DC, he took Bobby with him because he wanted somebody he could trust or something to that effect. Though I yeah. think in that case, he's maybe talking to Audrey um, rather than his brother Ben, but yeah, I, I definitely see the strong uh, linkage there with the Kennedy family, and then of course Ben Horn uh, also has the affair with um, 
Laura Palmer and Twin Peaks as well. So you could draw kind of a further parallel from that. Uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are familiar with Anthony Summers, by the way, but he's quite big uh, within the JFK assassination research. He wrote one of the, for many years, one of the more storied books. I think it was not on your lifetime, if I remember correctly. Also wrote a um, excellent account of J. Edgar Hoover as well. It's um, one of the more scandalous ones that uh, features the description of Hoover's orgy in uh, New York with Roy Cohn and um, several young strapping lads while he's dressed up in drag. Certainly something that you will never forget if you have actually read that. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's it's interesting too because it seems like Marilyn Monroe was an ongoing um, fixation for Lynch throughout the remainder of his career. I mean, I think there were already traces maybe of Marilyn Monroe in uh, Blue Velvet, but certainly from uh, the point you're doing Twin Peaks onward, uh, she's a reoccurring theme in virtually all of the films uh, that he does from there on out, except for possibly the straight story, maybe. Sure. Yeah, and it's weird. And there's also that like kind of non sequitur bit in, I think it's the first official episode after the pilot when Cooper does his morning tape recording. And then at the end of it, just like out of nowhere, he's like, he's like, you know, what really went on between Marilyn Monroe and the Kennedys and who pulled the trigger on JFK? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I remember that too. Another fascinating thing in that. Um, and then also, too, it's interesting to note, I've already probably pointed this out before, but Marilyn Monroe actually uh, lived on the Santa Catalina Islands in oh. 1943 with her first husband, uh, which is very interesting. This is back before she, when she was Norma Jean, right before uh, she decided to take up a career in Hollywood and thus became Marilyn Monroe. Of course, this is right in the midst of the Second World War. Her first husband, uh, who would later go on to play a significant role in establishing the first SWAT team in L.A., uh, would join the Merchant Marine. And this is also, of course, unfolding against the backdrop of the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, the precursor to the CIA, training on the Santa Catalina Island during World War II. So fascinating that she has that lineage to that as well uh which again is another reason why i think that lynch has often referred to uh the milieu around the Catalina islands and the uh, tuna club of avalon in his films yeah it's definitely in there and it's weird because in my mind he's like he's more he comes at it from a more obtuse angle than you know something like chinatown right or even like the society and stuff like that where it's well, he's seems to be a lot more direct in the way that it references this stuff. He's always coming at it from that weird kind of abstract. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Well, it's just he's clearly so fascinated with a lot of the early murders and uh, scandals around Hollywood. Uh, I know upon rewatching season three of Twin Peaks recently, I think there's just like this random scene where one of the characters is watching sunset boulevard where you know you have the lady playing norman desmond coming out there and of course that's uh her character was based on um gosh i can't remember the actress's name the name norma desmond was actually a play on um i think the actress and then the individual she was accused of murdering who i believe was another actor if i'm not mistaken but uh, it just there's a lot of interesting little tidbits here and there spread throughout his movies where it'll crop up and just that general fascination with all of the 
bizarre things that happened in the early years of Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, Black Dahlia to a huge extent, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, on the note of other strange things that have happened in Hollywood, let's let's talk a little Charles Manson here for a second. So how do you see him appearing in Twin Peaks and other works of horror? Well, you know, I, I personally, my family has a weird connection to the Manson uh, stuff. Uh, I remember as a really young kid, um, every now and then, like at the family dinner table, talk would turn to this uh, family friend of ours and the, those poor people and what a horrible thing and everything. And I, you know, I was like five, my only other sibling was seven years older than me. And I was always like, well, you know, what are, what are you guys talking about? Oh, don't worry about it. You know, don't worry about it. It's nothing. Uh, and then my brother who was always happy to help out in these situations explained to me later when I was maybe like seven that uh, my mom had grown up with these folks named the Cummers. Her best friend was this Jerry Cummer here in Michigan. And her brother, Tom, had moved to Los Angeles and changed his name to Jay Sebring. <laughs> and yeah, I just remember my brother telling me, yeah, there was a, the lady was, there was a pregnant lady and they butchered this pregnant lady and stuff. And me just being like, you've got to be making this up. And then my cousin stepping in and telling me, no, like none of this is made up. Uh, and that not only had it happened sort of to people that we knew, but that it had been like a very, it had kind of happened to everybody. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so I grew up super fascinated with that, um, just as a thing. And I, it still didn't occur to me until I started, uh, reviewing tons and tons of slasher movies a few years ago. And I, I was looking at, you know, movies like Halloween and, and Texas Chainsaw and stuff like that. And, you know, you're always interested in like, well, what's the antecedent for this thing? Or wh where does this come from? And it occurred to me, I was like, oh, like prior to 1969-70, like this wasn't really how we viewed violence so much. And then after you know, you have it in popular culture, the birth of this just like horribly rapacious, you know, bloodthirsty slaughtering machine. And then I got to thinking about Twin Peaks and the, the, that's when it hit me like a ton of bricks, like only like a couple of years ago, I'm like, oh yeah, like Bob is totally a visual, he's Manson, you know, right down to the way that Frank Silva, uh, think when the first time you see him, He's talking in the basement in the dream sequence in the European or Japanese version of the pilot. But then later, I guess, in episode two or three, when Cooper has that first dream, the way that he's kind of crouching while he's just ranting this gibberish and stuff. Like in my mind, it, at that point, it kind of hit me like, oh, yeah, like this is this is Charles Manson. Which. As things happen when you're looking at Twin Peaks, like sets off all these other alarm bells, right down to the giant saying in very early on, if not the first episode of Twin Peaks season three, in the in in one of the liminal spaces, he tells Trapped Cooper, you know, it, it is in our house now, which is like to me, that's like that's the fundamental terror at the heart of the whole. Manson thing is that you just have this 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 killing thing 
you know, breaching the threshold of the home, right? Which plays, I think, in a lot of interesting ways into what Bob is narratively in the story and what Bob is on an abstract level in the story. And even kind of the role that this Manson energy plays in the larger sort of ecosystem of the show's meta humor, wherein, you know, it's, it's all of TV history sort of thrown into this food processor uh, all at once, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I see what you're getting at. Um, you know, with the horror genre, it's a very valid point in that there was, a, I think, a pretty significant change around the late seven, late 60s, early 70s. Obviously, the violence and the gore was one aspect of it. But I mean, I think another uh, was increasingly the uh, the shifting of many horror films out of these you know, these kind of gothic manners and stuff like that, that it characterized the old universal films and the hammer horror films and that kind of thing, uh, where they're based on Edgar Allan Poe's stories and so forth, and bringing that into the modern suburb, where people were increasingly terrorized, not so much by uh, mythological monsters like vampires or werewolves, but more so through um, you know, slasher murderers. I mean, certainly they were given rather inhumanistic uh, abilities to return from the dead, let us just say, but they still were, you know, at least fundamentally, uh, you know, they're not like conventional universal monsters or anything. I mean, they're essentially fundamentally masked human beings, if you will. So I do think that that's an interesting point. And certainly it does seem like that it's a reflection on the culture or the shift that we had going through with the Manson killings and how it affected culture more broadly speaking. It's just sort of bizarre from that point onward too, where you would see many of the horror films coming out of this starting to eerily uh, almost predict real life happenings. Um, of course, I'm sort of reminded of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise where on the one hand, I mean, it's based on Ed Gein and all of that but conversely the sort of notion of these you know these isolated ranches along the texas mexico border with this kind of band of killers there it's eerily similar to some of the latter claims about the hand of death with henry lee lucas or adopo costanzo's cult um, within the golf cartel that was operating out of operating out of metamoros um and then also famously mark frost as well um one of the scripts that he wrote before Twin Peaks was for a movie called The Believers with Martin Sheen, which also uh, very eerily uh, parallels later crimes that were committed by Adolfo Constanzo. So there is a lot of very striking, I think, aspects of that, how as Manson entered into the popular consciousness, it shifted film and then gradually film almost seems like it predicted a lot of uh what would begin to unfold in a real world is quite horrendously at that yeah it's it's grim stuff to think about and it's weird you know to your point like how quick how quick horror film and pop culture took took the story in and started to regurgitate it like you've got i think the other side of madness which is literally a a movie made about the manson murders it was produced and maybe even released while the trial was still going on. 
And then, you know, within like a year or two, you get Texas Chainsaw and like, uh, I don't know if you've ever, have you ever seen Last House on Dead End Street? Seen Last House on the Left. This is, yeah, which is also, I think, a Manson. Yeah, that was another one that was definitely influenced by the Manson killings. But like Last House on Dead End Street is completely horrifying. <laughs> and it's about this guy who looks for some reason exactly like Bill Hader uh, getting out of prison and he decides he's going to get back at society by making snuff films. And the whole thing is him recruiting these, like kind of like building this cult. And then they hole up in this uh, empty building and murder these four people. And it was, didn't come out till 74, but it was produced right in 72, you know? So it was like almost immediate that this stuff started to leak into horror. And then, you know, the movie snuff that Roberta Finley worked on and, all the way up to, you know, like the, the classic slashers, uh, the, uh, the guy who played the killer in slumber party massacre, like looks just like Manson and apparently modeled his old performance, you know, on him and stuff. Um, but there's one of the thing about Bob and, and I guess about Bob in particular, if we have a second that I think is super weird and kind of interesting oh go for it i went back to do some uh reading before this call and i was looking at a book that wayne state university put out in the the early to mid 90s called full of secrets which is a bunch of different critical essays on twin peaks and you know one of them was saying how bob narratively kind of functions as a as an excuse for the stuff that that leland palmer does uh, and I've thought about that a lot over the years since I read it. It's the, the essay is specifically a response to the episode where you learn that this Bob thing has possessed Leland Palmer. And I got to thinking about it, you know, there's a, a whole thing with, I guess what David Foster Wallace called, uh, the boldness of David Lynch, where you have th- these multiple le- levels of meaning that are all kind of true. And I think it's interesting to note about Bob, in as much as he's a stand-in for Manson or not, uh, being, it's like when Crowley talks about demon summoning, right? And he's like, I think in Magic Without Tears, the question is, you know, are demons, do they have a physical reality? Do they have an external reality? Do they just represent some aspect of the psychology? And Crowley's response is like, well, yeah, you know, like, well, both. And I think Bob and one on a strict narrative level, they say as much in the story, he's like a, this skeevy dude who lives next to the, the Palmer's lake house and he attacks and abuses Leland. And this is what leads Leland into doing what he winds up doing. And I think that's, that's a viable, psychologically speaking, that's a viable explanation for why something that awful would happen. You've also got the narrative level wherein the Mike character, you know, summons this demon as his, what he calls his familiar, and then has some sort of change of heart or loses control of the familiar and is now pursuing Bob to try and stop him. And so there's a real kind of multivalence as far as what what Bob is like, is he, 
does he represent some destroyed part of of Palmer's psyche, or does he represent literally a demon that's summoned and then possesses Palmer? And I think it's like very much both, and I don't think either of them function as an excuse for for Palmer's behavior. I don't I don't think the story lets him off the hook for that. I think that it's in a lot of ways a very true representation of how that horrible kind of victimization almost functions as a communicable thing, like a disease that goes that's passed from one person on to the other, you know, and in that context, I guess that more than anything else makes Laura Palmer sort of a super heroic character because, you know, in fire walk with me, she refuses to take the ring in as much as the ring symbolizes this sort of unending cycle of, you know, victimization and, and uh, abuse and stuff, you know, she's refusing to, to, to be a link in that chain. And so that's why they kill her and stuff. And I just think that that's, you know, the Bob character really represents how there's sort of not one decoder key or decoder ring for Twin Peaks. You know, there's so many different levels of meaning and interpretation that coexist next to each other that don't cancel each other out and often sort of inform each other in, you know, really meaningful and often like very disturbing kind of ways, if, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. And I mean, I think that's a valid point too about Leland uh, also being partially responsible. I think that's rather something that the show makes pretty clear is that uh, the Black Lodge or whatever you want to call it affects certain people in a particular way if they have flaws in their character. This is essentially why Cooper becomes trapped in there for 25 years and ends up being effectively split into two with his doppelganger because he did not have a pure heart or pure right. heart when he entered. So, yeah, that's um, definitely a compelling, you know, kind of a chicken and the egg scenario. And then they kind of further, I guess, add to it with the implications that possibly Sarah Palmer was who was housing the demon Judy. So... Mm -hmm. Well, how does Bob, how does the Bob cameo in Twin Peaks, the return play into this? You know, that's, I mean, for me, just as a viewer, that's, that's a frustrating point because, you know, obviously, sadly, Frank Zilva, uh, along with, you know, David Bowie and some other folks weren't, weren't, weren't for health or, or reasons of passing able to be in the thing. I, that is an area that is very murky to me. I'm to be perfectly honest, still sort of hacking my way through an understanding of season three. Uh, it felt to me like they didn't have Silva, they didn't have Bowie, and they had to sort of figure out other ways to incorporate those characters because you kind of can't, you kind of can't move forward from Fire Walk with me without without the Philip Jeffries character, and obviously Bob is integral to the whole the whole thing. But as far as like the the kid with the green gloves who like beats up the Bob Orb and all that stuff, that is a uh, that is some enigmatic stuff. I mean, do you have any do you have any theories on it? How can I put this? I mean, the, one of the things like we I had kind of mentioned when uh, we had started talking here before we started to record is. When going back and rewatching it, I really feel that parallel universes and timelines are an integral component to season three. I'd already 
kind of been on that track when I watched it back in 2017, but it seemed even more obvious this time around. Uh, Because one of the big things that had immediately jumped out to me when I was watching Twin Peaks The Return in 2017 was the trailer park uh, that the Henry Dean Staten character manages. And it's clearly placed in Oregon in uh the in fire walk with me but in the return it's based in twin peaks and it's you know well you sit there and think well maybe he just you know up and moved his trailer park and named it the exact same thing or whatever or opened a new one in twin peaks but then on top of that they have like the whole thing with the electric pole which looks exactly like the one in oregon and has the same numbers and all this other kind of stuff so that it's not as easy to kind of explain away there i mean you know okay maybe he starts a new trailer park but is he going to end up having a trailer park right next to an electrical pole that has the same weird set of numbers as he did in oregon it just and that it kind of made me think what if there uh what if this was a slightly different reality than what we had seen in the previous incarnations of twin peaks and it seems like there are more um, hints at that uh, throughout the series as well um, I kind of it also noticed for instance that it seemed like Norma and Ed's relationship was a little off like they didn't even seem to recall the extensive affair that Ed had had with um, Norma while um, oh what what is his wife's name again um, Oh, Nadine. Nadine, yeah, yeah. The the fair that Nadine had actually had with Mike. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, it's like they don't even get into that at all, even though there was that that was a pretty major subplot in the second season. Uh, whereas here they kind of act like Ed and uh Norma hadn't uh, been romantically involved since high school, which clearly wasn't the case. I guess unless theoretically Nadine was maybe remembering it as all part of high school, but I don't it was at least strongly implied at the end of the second season and the finale that she realized that she was an adult woman again. But um, and then when you sort of look into some of the other stuff with it with Audrey, and then obviously when you get into the final sections of season three, where it clearly seems like Cooper first is trying to alter uh the timeline where Laura Palmer doesn't die, uh, and then after that fails, he again seems to have entered into a weird alternate reality where he's now this Richard fellow and Diane is Linda all of which is mentioned in the very first episode or the first episode of season three when the giant is talking to Cooper and that scene that you alluded to where he mentions that it's in their house now and he also kind of randomly says remember Richard and Linda what two five three or something like that um but anyway, you see him sort of slipping into this other dimension. And so, yeah, I just, I feel like that is a major part of it. And it's just fascinating in, you know, sort of a cultural standpoint. This is right around the time notions like the Mandela effect were really starting to gain traction. And I have wondered uh, upon rewatching it how much of this was something that they were deliberately trying to put into the show because specifically, you know, another thing is in relation to Bob, I can see how, you know, you really needed uh, Bowie's character 
uh, to appear in some form in this because Philip Jeffries, it may become so important from Fire Walk with me, but you probably could have worked around uh, Garland Briggs, for instance, even though they also make Briggs into a pretty significant uh, presence in it as well. And also the man from another planet, the arm. But it does seem like by bringing these characters into the show in different incarnations, it's another way to emphasize that the reality of the return of Twin Peaks is slightly different than what than the reality that the previous incarnations have been inhabiting. At least that's my take anyway. But um don't want to get us too sidetracked here though. I, I right on. I I do think you're absolutely right. Because even in like the uh the secret history of Twin Peaks that Frost put out shortly before season three started, if I remember, uh it's got a completely different origin story for uh ed hurley and nadine's relationship and her loss of an eye and everything that completely contradicts what was uh stated in season two and i remember at the time being like what the what this isn't right and yeah no i recall that now that you bring that out especially since that's such a powerful scene it's it's one of the ones involving albert too where he has that sort of smart alecky comments going on and ed recounts how um uh, what she had shot her eye out when they were out hunting together or something and how he had to drive yeah. her to the emergency room yep yeah and it's completely different in the book and i think you know they they're literally showing in response to Cooper's dimension jumping or time jumping, the reality is like kind of splitting up as it goes. Cause there's that sequence where uh, Bobby Briggs goes out into a traffic jam and this woman starts vomiting all this green stuff. And I remember at the time interpreting that as like, oh, well reality is somehow destabilized or something. But there's also like a shot where the crowd inside the double R diner somebody runs in and yells that they're looking for somebody and then the whole diner changes like all the people in it like in a snap is it's like a different diner population and there's also a scene where big ed is looking out the front of his gas station and he's stirring a little cup of soup and his reflection is in the glass and like he seems to see his reflection behave in a way that's not consistent with the movements that he's actually engaged in while while watching his reflection and yeah so again i agree with not to get sidetracked but i think that that's definitely part of the text in season three is that this these realities are crisscrossing and coming apart and even that when cooper and uh the new laura are on their really long drive at the end in the middle of episode 18 um that they actually enter our reality because they drive by the double R diner, but it doesn't bear the double R sign. It bears the sign that it actually has like in our real life, you know? So there's just so much stuff going on, but yeah, I agree with that take completely. No, that's fascinating. Yeah. It's, it was definitely quite an experience rewatching it recently with all of this in mind. Um, but yeah, well, let's, I mean, we could probably muse endlessly about different dimensions in this, but let's get back to a few other subjects here at hand. Um, so uh, let's see here. So one of my favorite shows, I know you brought this up, uh, is True Detective Season 1. 
I should say it's one of my favorite seasons of all times, much like with Stranger Things season one. I'm not a big fan of uh, the rest of either uh, franchise after that, but both cases, season one is superb, especially True Detective. So you describe this as another swing at the Laura Palmer murder. How so? I think just, you know, at a, at a, at a strict textual level, you know, they're finding this, this woman at the beginning who's been murdered um, and her, as they go through, you know, the, the, the murder has more and more uh, occult implications and involves a wider cast of players, even than just the murderer that they eventually apprehend at the, apprehend at the end, the, the spaghetti guy who lives in that horrifying, you know, uh, whatever that is, like, it's like some kind of a drainage facility or something like that, if I remember. Um, but he's connected to these larger, uh, you know, the, the governors or politicians and, and, and Catholic church leaders and stuff. It just seems to me, I mean, obviously the show influenced pretty much everything that, that's come after it. Speaking of Twin Peaks, so I think that its stamp is on it as an influence. But to me, I think you can, you can kind of look at it as, as the same mystery being tackled again maybe with some of the supernatural stuff just brought up into the mundane reality of the story, but kind of rendered no less horrifying. Um, yeah, it really feels to me like, like, like a sibling to Twin Peaks. And I would certainly argue that it's a lot more interesting to me than a lot of the sort of more overt and more obvious uh, Twin Peaks ripoffs, like, you know, the X-Files or I've never seen Erie, Indiana, is that I think, think that's a show that's Twin Peaks based and stuff. But I thought True Detective really carried the torch as far as building on its themes. And also with all of uh, Russ Cole's business about time being a flat circle and everything, you know, it really ties into, I think, the Gnostic angle that Twin Peaks seems to be hyper preoccupied with. Yeah, no, it's like I said, it's that's why it's sort of fascinating that scene in the beginning uh, between Cooper and the giant, uh, where I mentioned before, where he the giant tells Cooper, Richard and Linda and uh, two birds with one stone, a few other things like that, uh, which doesn't really come into play until the very last episode when he becomes Richard. I also love the comments there at the end where Cooper says something like, I understand. And the giant is like, no, you are far away. Because, uh -huh. yes, it essentially, you know, all loops back on that moment. <laughs> yeah. Cooper doesn't even realize it. I think that's kind of like the horror, you know, again, that uh, he's showing in that expression when Laura whispers in his ear at the very end of the uh, the season. Because she's telling him he never got out of the Black Lodge. He just right. was going into the endless circle there. <laughs> Yeah, totally. There's a, there's that scene uh, where I think, you know, Cooper, who's being mistaken for Dougie, uh, has this big cleanup at the casino and they bring him into an interrogation room, right? The casino, because they want to they find out how he took so much money from them. And there's something with a, you know, this is, this is the downside of me not having rewatched this right before we talked, but the either in that room there's an owl or when he they drop him off and he goes home to, to see Janie E he hears an owl above him and he looks up but there's some very distinct reference in those scenes to the fact that like oh he has completely 
still in the Black Lodge. And that like, you know, yeah, that's the terrifying thing is that very likely he never gets out for the whole run of the of the season. It's kind of another interesting thing too with the owls because they're such a big part of the the original show, but you don't really see very much of them at all in uh, the return. But they are subtly referenced here and there. And then, of course, there's the scene where Evil Cooper has the uh, the playing card that has the owl uh, mm-hmm. symbol fashioned onto it. But yes, they have a very subtle presence and a kind of similar to to um, the white horse that Sarah Palmer sees that kind of crops up via like a lot of various ornaments and things like that here and there um on the topic of shows that have uh been greatly influenced by Twin Peaks have you seen Riverdale I have not I have not it's really really interesting I had resisted it because again it was I think a CW show I had you know felt that it would be really teeny bopper-esque but I kept seeing it uh, referred to as a kind of the new Twin Peaks. And after a while, uh, after one of my friends had strongly recommended it, I broke down and watched it. And I was really blown away by it. I honestly think that it does live up to the reputation as sort of a contemporary Twin Peaks. It does have a certain amount of parallels to uh, the Lynch show, the Frost show, especially in the first season, which again, is sort of set in this idealistic town, Riverdale, and revolves around uh, the sudden death of the high school football star. But from there, they kind of gradually begin subverting it. And much like Twin Peaks, it plays into so many uh, classic Americana pop culture tropes that they keep incorporating in throughout. I mean, all these references to various shows and different staples and novels and things like that is the seasons progress and eventually it also introduces this whole dynamic of uh, time travel and different uh, timelines and so forth that they're trying to establish for the most ideal world so i find it fascinating um that both of these two franchises sort of play around with the notions of pop culture and ultimately how um it shapes reality and then further as to how different realities could be merged or blended together so it's really heady stuff and then on top of that you know you have the uh the fact that what's it i can't remember the actress's name but the one who shelly or madchen yes 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 she's in both of them um she actually has quite a colorful role in uh, riverdale as well and it's it's interesting in that regard too because she looks more like her Riverdale character in Twin Peaks The Return than she does like Shelley. She's not a redhead uh, in The Return, which is another kind of interesting dynamic to her character in it because that was, you know, she was sort of like, the you know, the show's premier redhead, obviously, like Andre and um, Donna were the brunettes, Laura was the blonde, Norma was the other blonde, and Shelley was kind of like the main redhead. So I thought that that was interesting that they made her into a blonde for this one. Um, as Lynch does seem to have a, a bit of a fixation on hair colors for his actresses. He does a lot of the kind of Hitchcock yeah. stuff. So I can't help but feel that that was uh, deliberate as well. Um, but yeah, it's it's very curious with how they sort of worked in some of that. And of course, I think Riverdale was airing like roughly concurrently with uh, Twin Peaks as well. And then there's also, I don't know if you picked up on it, but there's at least one really interesting um, X-Files reference 
in Twin Peaks, the return besides David Duchovny appearing. I was going to say, Peaks, obviously, but um, the pack of cigarettes that Richard Horn gives that crooked cop um when they're at the the roadhouse. Uh, by the way, another uh, Jean Renault is inexplicably alive. So right, <laughs> I think that they never explain. But anyway, um, Richard right. is uh giving the corrupt cop that you know that payoff or whatever that's in a pack of cigarettes and the cigarettes the brand or morley's uh which is what the cigarette smoking man smokes in the x-files really yeah 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 i thought that was really interesting that they did have the specific x-files brand uh that cgb ours uh, yeah i guess it was his name actually cgb skinder or spender or something like that but yeah it was um that uh, was a nice little uh, nugget, I think, that they threw in there deliberately as well. So, and then obviously you have the whole thing with David Duchovny coming back, reprising his role as Denise. Um, uh -huh. Of course, you know, you can't help but feel that the original incarnation of Denise slash Dennis probably was an inspiration for Fox Mulder. And it's another oh, yeah. How they wrap it around with all the different kind of pop culture tropes. So, yeah, it's, it is fascinating in that sense how Lynch... I think with the third season plays into on the one hand again all of the the shows that had come before it, different franchises and the references to them, but then also a lot of the series the Twin Peaks had inspired in the aftermath as well, and kind of finds a way to pay tribute or incorporate them potentially into it as well because it does make you wonder: well, is this supposed to be the same universe, for instance, as the X Files? Maybe.
All right. Uh, let's get into something that you've dubbed uh, the Lynch continuum. It ties into Jalal. Did I get it right? Uh, the Jallo. Jallo, Jallo. Yeah. So I'm automatically intrigued. I take it you see uh, this is a kind of weird American Jallo, uh, Twin Peaks, that is to say. I, you know, I think so. It, it's It's been a weird thing for me I uh, to have watched for the first time a lot of Italian horror in the last couple of years. You know, and I think I was, I think I had seen Suspiria or something like that, but but really I'm immersing myself in a lot of like, you know, the other Argento movies or Sergio Martino and all those fellas. Uh, it's been really weird. I think Argento more than any of them, right? Cause he's got those like vivid red and black environments that he shoots in that are sort of like really obviously, you know, artificial sets, but they have this really hyper real kind of uh, strangeness to them. I think even as early as Blue Velvet, Lynch is working a very heavy Jallo influence. Um, and it's strange to me because it never really gets talked about, at least in a lot of the American criticism uh, around Lynch. But it certainly seems to be there. And so you definitely have the, the visual thing. I think there's there's a lot of fetishization of you know, leather and, 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 and gloves and whatnot in these, these Italian movies that I think are very much represented in Lynch's work as well. So there's all that. And then there's a whole subcategory of uh, Italian horror that I think, for example, uh, Mario Bava's Kill Baby, Baby Kill is a movie about a, there's a, a girl's murdered and this doctor comes to this rural village to perform an autopsy on her. He's, he's a total dick. So he's not, he's not like the Cooper that we know, but there's still this real explicit collision between, you know, the urbane and modernity and science versus this, these ancient superstitions and whatnot that is super Twin Peaks. Uh, and Kill Baby Kill, admittedly, is, is I think a movie that gets cited more often as being a, a, an influence. But it actually ends, I was surprised to see, it ends with the main character, this doctor, being pursued through endless rooms in this strange castle, like by himself. Like, so he's chasing him endlessly through these different rooms. And it's completely the Cooper chase with his doppelganger at the end of season two. So that's super strange. There's a movie called Enigma Rosso or The Red Rings of Fear from 1978 uh, that stars Fabio Testi, who's, you know, great in a lot of other Italian genre movies. Um, but in this, he plays, you know, an investigator, a detective wearing like the beige overcoat and a girl washes up on the shore visually it's the same she's wrapped in plastic and they come up and they peel the plastic away and identify her face and stuff and then he starts looking into the case and they find her purse it's got a bunch of unex, unexplained cash in it it's also got a diary with a clasp on it everybody's obsessing over this girl's diary it turns out she's sort of like involved in a sex worker ring involving like high school girls and stuff and she's being menaced by this 
sinister, maybe even supernatural entity, which I think in Red Rings of Fear, they call the Black Shadow. But, you know, there's, it's, I guess it's not hard to picture Lynch in the late 70s and early 80s taking in these movies, you know, at the local art house or, or, or you know, grindhouse or wherever they were showing uh, and being really influenced by them, which is funny to me because he's such an accepted part kind of of the the high middle of, of, of you know, the American culture, but he's hyper influenced by these movies that are by many standards, you know, just absolute, yeah, you know, prurient trash. Uh, I love them, but it's it's a funny kind of low low influence for for Twin Peaks, I think, uh, or for Lynch in general as a as a filmmaker. No, I could definitely see that. Uh, obviously, you hear a lot of the references to Fellini being a big influence on Lynch, which I mean is pretty clear, I would say. But somebody like Argento, though, I I can totally see that. Just in general, I feel like Argento probably was much much more influential in the generation of American art house filmmakers. Uh, that came up in the 80s going into the 90s then he's given the credit for that he really should be given uh not just i would say visually but also to some extent structurally too of course one of the major criticisms against argento was that his films you know they don't have the tightest plots to some extent you could describe them as almost a set of like random vintages or sets or what are scenes that are kind of strung together and loosely connected with one another usually characterized by several set piece uh, killings or something to that effect but you could really say the same thing about a lot of lynch's latter films as well uh obviously he's playing at a much more a little more sophisticated level than argento but I, there is that sort of almost dreamlike logic to the narratives of both uh filmmakers and a lot of their best work if you will uh so i can definitely see that and just in general i would argue that there was always a much more philosophical bent to some of these films i'm i don't know if it would necessarily be considered a gelato film but uh, one of my uh, favorite Italian horror films from the 90s, Cemetery Man. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's kind of like almost a, a horror version of Groundhog Day or something like that. But, you know, it sort of starts out as a fairly conventional zombie movie, maybe a bit of a black comedy as well, like the Return of Living Dead films. But after a while, uh, it kind of gets into the existential question, is there anything else beyond the graveyard? And the little village that the world and the guy kind of caught in some repetitive nightmare or something like that it's uh a lot of those films are surprisingly deep uh when you look at them from a certain point of view so yeah i do feel like as a whole lynch was probably much more influenced by uh, what we would what many critics would consider to be low culture if you will uh which he is often uh, really romanticized in a lot of his movies so totally it, it's funny that you mentioned cemetery man because you know i think it's it's pretty easy to interpret that movie i mean it, it's a super cryptic movie like you're right like it's very perplexing but i think you can look at it as you know the uh, the Rupert Everett, the main character, is 
has murdered his wife and is struggling to construct an alternate reality for himself mentally within the trauma of having committed that murder. And then it keeps breaking down and breaking down. And I think he's got the Nagi who's like his like sublingual buddy. And somehow at the end, when Nagi starts talking, that's him finally accepting or recognizing what he's done. But long story short, I probably just butchered that. Uh, But it's uh, that's, you know, that's the plot of Lost Highway, like in a nutshell, and arguably also Mulholland Drive sort of is these these people building these, you know, uh, fantasy realities for themselves and then watching it kind of break apart and, and whatnot. The one other thing I wanted to mention about the, the influence stuff is the, the weird, the weird phenomenon of movies that are just like twin peaks, but predate it. Like specifically there's one movie called grave robbers from 1988. So it came out a full year before the pilot to twin peaks and it, not to be confused with the, the, the Spanish language grave robbers that came out right at the same time. But this is by a, a guy named Straw Wiseman. Have you ever seen Straw Wiseman's Grave Robbers? Uh, no, I'm not familiar with that one, Joe. It's, it's really strange in that like it's about a, there's like a, a waitress who working in a diner that's like a very Twin Peaksy diner and the first first major event in the movie is that this guy comes into the diner and he's dressed in like a Cooper-esque suit. And eventually the idea is that she wants to leave. She's actually a sex worker and she wants to get out of that. And so it's super Laura Palmer-esque and tons of Twin Peaks imagery and Lynchian imagery. And then it, then it devolves into this weird like necrophilia thing. And it's tonally really kind of shoots back and forth between really dark stuff like that and really like slapstick comedy or whatever. It's a weird movie, but if you didn't know the date that it came out, you'd think like, Oh, somebody watched twin peaks and they wanted to rip it off and like, you know, but they, they'd suffered some sort of a head injury and this was the best, this is what happened, you know, but, but yeah, it, it, it came out a full year before the twin peaks pilot. And I am, it's just such a weird kind of phenomenon that these things kind of, kind of happen, you know, around Lynch's work. All right. Well, let's start getting into Twin Peaks proper now. Ciphers are a subject that I've become fascinated by in recent years. Naturally, they factor heavily into Twin Peaks. So what's your take on the use of ciphers in the franchise? Well, you know, I think that they're, they're definitely there the show itself is makes no bones about the fact that it's it's a show obsessed with puzzles and it's a show obsessed with codes and puns and riddles and things like that um even you know bob taunts the uh the the law enforcement with these bizarre letters that he sticks under the fingernails you know that spell out rbt which is they eventually deduce as robert which is you know, long for Bob. Uh, and I think numbers, like you were talking about with the, the uh, what is it, the Deer Meadow um, trailer yeah, park. They have that. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, there's the telephone pole, which uh, the numbers on the telephone pole, it's like uh, the top row of numbers adds up to 24, and then there's a big six underneath it. And if you subtract, you know, six from 24, you get 18, which six plus six plus six is 18. And there's a, there's a, there's a pretty famous old article by a, a fellow named Greg Rickman in the old Wrapped in Plastic magazine where he obsessively breaks down all these number games as he sees them in the series. Uh, which again, you know, is very open about being obsessed with codes and puzzles. And even like when Cooper returns, I think in, at the end of season three, he starts talking about 10 being the number of completion, you know, which as far as I understand is a very Kabbalistic concept because 10, you know, representing the bottom of the tree of life with Malkuth and the world of matter and all that stuff. Uh, it's definitely in there, but this Rickman identifies like just tons and tons of instances of 18 popping up in the show. Uh, Cooper's room number at the Great Northern is, uh, is 315. It's 513, I believe. 513. So it's, you know, that's another six plus six. Or maybe six. it is 315. I, it always kind of stuck to me. Yeah, I think it is 315 because, see, my old address in Florida was 513. So I always was a bit fixated <laughs> on Cooper's uh, hotel uh, room having the same numbers as it. But um, yeah, I think you're right, though. It's 315. Yeah. And I think also Philip Jeffrey's room uh, in the deleted scenes of Fire Walk With Me he's his room is 315 uh you know lynch had that other series right around the time of twin peaks that hotel room where he did the episode with crispin glover i think and alicia witt and their room is 603 so you know you could you could strain a bit there and say six times three is 18 um leland palmer comes into laura's room at 1035 which is 18 so you get another 666 there uh, Philip Jeffrey's appearance in the show is, is February, uh, is February 16th. So that's another 18. So there's a lot of that stuff going on. Um, and this Rickman sort of details it all in pretty, pretty intense detail. His other thing that he goes through, there's the, uh, the notion of anagrams that the characters, the, the, a lot of the key characters' names were selected for their anagrammatic uh, weight. And he, this article, he lists, you know, like 30 different uh, anagrams for Wyndham Earl, uh, which are, are pretty, you know, they, they line up with, with the characters uh, sort of bent. And uh, the, if, if one were to argue like, oh, well, you know, how would they have, how would they have decoded all these anagrams, you know, in 1988 when they were writing the script? Uh, it turns out that the first uh, anagram generator that you could use on a desktop computer uh, came out in 1986. So it is feasible, you know, that as they were writing these characters' names down, they could have gone and, and uh, run them through the, uh, this generator to see what, how many different anagrams you can pull out of the names. And it is interesting to know, like, you know, if you put David Lynch into an anagram generator, you're like, you get nothing. Like there's no words you can pull out of that. So it's not, it's not necessarily a case where you could just go, oh, well, you put anything into an anagram generator, you're going to get something back. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think that there's, there's definitely 
a layer of meaning that you can mine from these things. There's also, you know, with gematria and stuff, you know, if you do it where you take just the standard English alphabet and you assign all the characters, you know, a, a digit one through 26. So A is one, B is two, you know, all the way up to Z being 26. Uh, if you do that with the word Cooper, you get 72. And then if you do the reverse of that and start with A is 26 and Z is one, you get 90. So Cooper is 72, anti-Cooper is 90, and the difference between those two is, is 18. So you get another 666. Uh, from, a, from a geometric standpoint, also, if you take Bob, which is, you know, uh, an anagram, uh, that's another thing, but you get 19. And if you do FBI, you get 17. So you could argue that those two numbers sit alongside 18, giving you another six plus six plus six. You know, I think, I think there's a limit to how much you can attribute these things to the intent of the show's authors. But I think at the same time, you're, you're dealing with two guys that, that really have a taste for this kind of stuff and have demonstrated it in their other works and certainly have spoken about it in uh, not just interviews, but actually in the, in the spoken script of their, a lot of their, their show. So I think that, that some of this stuff bears the, the thumbprint of intention on it, you know? Now, I've actually wondered at times if they had also potentially used something like the cut-up method uh, favored by William Burroughs uh, for maybe some of the names or something like that, or even potentially to arrange some of the episodes with, you know, and how scenes were presented or something to that effect, um, which, I mean, again, might sound a little outlandish, but keep in mind, Lynch was obviously a big David Bowie fan. Uh, he does have quite a memorable role in Twin Peaks. So Bowie, uh, I believe, was using the cut-up method, uh, I think at least during the Berlin Trilogy, maybe also during Station to Station, but that was something that he had toyed, toyed around with artistically as well. I would have to imagine that Lynch would have been familiar with that and just in general, some of the approaches taken by a guy like Burroughs fictionally. So yeah, that again seems about par of the course with some of the interests that uh, Lynch and Frost have demonstrated over the years. So Jay, what is the Gnostic Twin Peaks? I mean, you know, Lynch and Frost are both sort of famously well-versed in, in different you know, forms of esoterica and, and uh, theosophy and whatnot. And, you know, you have even in the, uh, the original series, those references to the Dugpas, you know, being uh, like a hermetic sect of, of Himalayan monks, you know, and that you have, and, and there's a, actually there's a book called The Devil's Guard from, I think like 1921 or something like that. And it's a very, uh, it's a remarkably modern pulp novel, if you've ever read it, uh, that uh, is kind of like an Indiana Jones character and he goes to the Himalayas and it's written by a guy named Talbot Mundy and he uncovers this monk war between the, what he refers to in the book as the White Lodge and the Black Lodge and they're fighting and everything that happens in the world is basically like a uh, aftershock of these psychic battles that occur between these two warring tribes of good and evil Himalayan, you know, Tibetan monks. Uh, sorry, I'm <laughs> kind of spinning out there, but like, 
But I think, you know, what I what I'm getting at is that in all that, I think these guys, Frost and Lynch, both demonstrate a, a pretty deep understanding of of all this stuff. And the thing that struck me, and again, this realization was kind of uh, brought about by the magazine wrapped in plastic back in the in the mid '90s, you know, because I had I had been a Lynch fan for years, and I really enjoyed watching Twin Peaks. I was really crushed by the end of it with Cooper, you know, becoming possessed by Bob or the, you know, the emergence of the Cooper doppelganger and in, into the real world. Um, and I, you know, I was like 18, 19 at the time, and it was super perplexing to me. And then I found this article called uh, the Gnostic Twin Peaks, I think, in wrapped in plastic. And they started talking about, you know, uh, it was also my introduction to Gnosticism. They start talking about, uh, you know, the Gnostic view of, of the Ouroboros or the, the world snake, you know, eating its tail. And how at that point we only had Twin Peaks season one, Twin Peaks season two and Fire Walk With Me. And this article kind of broke down how those three elements formed a perfect whole and a circle because you have, I mean, I think just in the fact that it's a prequel, Fire Walk With Me is interesting because it's, it comes after the conclusion of the story at that point, up to that point and continues it by jumping back to the beginning prior to the beginning of the story. But I don't think that in and of itself is Gnostic because if that was the case, you know, then the star Wars prequel trilogy would be Gnostic as well. And I don't want to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to die on that Hill, but uh, interestingly, you know, events from the final episode of twin peaks season two, namely Heather Graham's, you know, uh, almost murder at the hand of, of, of uh, Cooper or Wyndham Earl, whoever, whoever injures her, you know, she appears to Laura in her bed in fire walk with me and says, you know, the good Cooper is trapped in the, in the black lodge, write it down in your diary. Uh, and that's a really chilling and effective demonstration. I think of, you know, the world snake, the world serpent, you know, the snake that uh, is at once, you know, it once begets and devours, right? Uh, where the future is impacting the past and all that kind of kind of deal, which I think is a super Gnostic uh, concept. And then like all things in Twin Peaks, you could go, oh, well, you know, that's kind of a reach maybe. And maybe it is, but there are so many references in the show to these concepts. Just in Fire Walk With Me Alone, you know, you've got... Uh, this exchange between Kiefer Sutherland and uh, Chris Isaac, where Sutherland's like, it's, it's late, it's really late. And Chet Desmond or Chris Isaac says, it's early, it's really early. And so you're getting, uh, you're setting up this kind of like confusion between ends and beginnings. Uh, you've also got in, in, uh, season three, you know, all these, these references to like, uh, is it future or is it past? Uh, so Twin Peaks is definitely, I think, expressing this true detective <laughs> uh, style idea that, you know, the circular nature of time and, uh, you know, the Gnostics saw that, that serpent as sort of like a, uh, in and of itself a revelation and in and of itself sort of like a thing through which the higher aspects of God spoke. So that's 
you know, I think a, a pretty interesting tie-in. And just the idea too that, you know, the Gnostic notion of, of a fallen material world and a higher spiritual world is expressed through, you know, uh, the very least Bob and his, you know, he, he dwells in the forest and he's sort of like a, uh, a very earthy character, even though he's emerges from spirit, you know, he's invaded our world. And I think he, in, he kind of maybe represents, you know, the demiurge or the blind idiot God of, of Gnosticism. Uh, and then the giant, you know, living in his, uh, in his theosophical mauve zone with the, uh, with the, you know, his, his, uh, his counterpart could maybe be seen as representing a higher, higher realm of spirit and stuff. Uh, I think it's, it's also interesting that, you know, a lot of the original uh, Gnostics apparently would subscribe one or the other to a life of like, you know, really like ascetic deprivation, or they would like dive headfirst into, into hedonism. And, you know, Cooper sort of occupies a very interesting space there because he is so, he's a spiritual character, but he's also very like uh, knee deep in the physical world, you know, and he's obsessed with like trees and nature and he loves to eat and he loves his coffee and all that stuff. Uh, and raises sort of the question, you know, if, if that aspect of his character is what eventually does him in, you know, when he goes into the Black Lodge and has to confront his his shadow and and all that stuff. Uh, but kind of getting back to the to the to the to the circular nature of time and everything, I think that that is very reflected in the show with its obsession with you know uh, rings and uh, even like donuts in the, the top rim of a, of a, of a coffee cup, it, you know, circles are everywhere. And even like, I believe it's the one-armed man, Mike wears circle brand boots. Uh, he uses a drug called haloperidol to, I guess, get his, get his visionary state under control. And haloperidol means uh, a circle surrounded by pain. If I, if my reading is correct, um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a visual motif. It's a, uh, conceptual motif. And even with like, you know, the very notion of Twin Peaks, you've got like the visible and the invisible functioning as counterparts to each other. And then like literally almost every single character or event in the work itself has a mirror counterpart, whether it's Laura and her cousin Maddie or Cooper and his doppelganger and even they have a have a twin with with the Dougie Coop uh you know there's two mics one of them's just a football player and one of them's uh you know this visionary uh magician or whatever he is but then like Mike the football player's nickname is Snake so it's it's definitely in there in my mind yeah, no, doubling is especially a huge part of Twin Peaks, as well as the sort of uh, silical nature of time. Uh, that was uh, something that I was also struck by. Oddly enough, I it was just a kind of occurred to me, but I 
I suspect The Shining, uh, Kubrick's version of The Shining, at least, was also uh, quite a, an influence, especially in the latter seasons of Twin Peaks. Of course, the the use of doubles and twins and The Shining is well known, but I mean, it also gets into a lot of concepts of time. Um, obviously, Nicholson's character ends up in that what that party in the 1920s or something like that. Um, yeah, it's another sort of fascinating concept of this and how uh, there's two notions play into one another, basically. Um, yeah, a very Gnostic concept. Both are very yeah. Gnostic concepts. Um, all right, let's start getting a little dark now. How does Twin Peaks relate to theories regarding elite rituals of human sacrifice? Well, you know, I think with the concept of the whole Garmin Bosia thing, uh, which I believe first rears its head in the finale of season two, when, you know, Bob goes into the Black Lodge and we see him interact with whatever his superiors there, you know, the, the other, the, the, the giant maybe in his dark aspect, if I recall, uh, and, or the, or the arm itself, uh, the, the man from another place. And they're like, give us all of our Garmin Bosia. And then the, the subtitle helpfully spells that out and says pain and suffering. And he, you know, thwacks this fistful of blood magically on the ground. And then the, 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 the arm eats it, you know, in the form of cream corn, uh, certainly functions as a, you know, at, at the very least, like a, a visual metaphor for the concept within, you know, a cult human sacrifice that you're, you're, you're creating and harvesting pain and suffering from, you know, whatever, whatever victim is unfortunate enough to be on the table. Right. Uh, and ties in with this occult idea of, you know, the blood being a portal between, uh, you know, spirit and matter. Uh, and that that's why bloodletting is a, serves a function in, in, in occult sacrifice. But, you know, definitely, I think if you strip away the supernatural stuff, you know, you can, you can sort of see the Black Lodge as this stand-in for real world, you know, secret gatherings where these things, you know, if, if, if the, uh, if the theories are to be, be, be uh, believed, you know, where these things happen. And, you know, Leland could almost be seen as someone who sort of hands his daughter over to these entities or attempt, attempts to hand his daughter over to these entities. Uh, you know, and they, they definitely hit a lot of real world touchstones that seem to line up with, with that lore or that, that, that uh, picture of reality, you know, with Laura, you know, she falls into this flesh world subterranean, you know, thing. And she's just a, she's just a high schooler. And that's connected to One-Eyed Jacks, which is a place. Which for... all kind of connects back to Ben Horn too, who's effectively kind of a Kennedy stand. No, that whole sort of subplot yes. with that does remind me a bit of um, Joe Kennedy, um, his connections to bootlegging, of course, with the Horn brothers. It's more drug trafficking in the um, the original series. But yeah, you do sort of get that component of it as well. For sure. 
Yeah. So I think, you know, it's definitely in there. And, and like I said, especially with the way that they dovetail it with, with the powerful people in and around Twin Peaks, it's like, they're not, you can certainly make that read of it, I think. Yeah. Well, I think too, that's one of the reasons why Las Vegas is such a big point of emphasis in season three. Cause honestly, I mean, I think almost as much of the show of season three is set in Vegas as it is in Twin Peaks itself and a few of the other uh, locations. But I think that again, one of the reasons why Lynch chose to use that is it's such a, uh, a perfect stand in for the different power factions in terms of military, uh, criminal, political, how they all, you know, I mean, Vegas is kind of an area where they all, are rather directly merged together at one and of course uh you know it's in the specter of area 51 all these other top secret military bases in the outside it's you know the long history of intrigues and everything that goes on there probably a lot of the shadier aspects involving human trafficking and so forth so i think that that was and then essentially also showing the um the evil dale cooper has effectively assumed a significant place within these societies that's that's kind of another interesting thing that's hinted at though they never really get into too much in depth but the notion that the evil cooper in the 25 years since he escaped the black lodge has emerged as this you know sort of international man of mystery this almost kaiser soze-esque figure who controls this vast criminal enterprise from behind the scenes and is potentially centered out of uh, has a power center out of las vegas or maybe some of the surrounding area uh so yeah it does sort of play into a lot of those notions and i think especially in the third season yeah and he, he's he's wealthy enough to build a, a box a glass box that can summon you know ethereal uh demonic entities into it and stuff yeah it's it's i never kind of put that together but yeah he's totally kaiser soze by season three yeah well i mean i think he also owns like that it's kind of implied that he owns that facility i think like in bonus eras too where there's another or at least i think they showed in the the deleted scenes from fire walk with me that was like another location into the black lodge if not mistaken i think bonus eras is where philip jeffries ended up uh, stumbling into it yeah but yeah it's it's very interesting how he has himself essentially evil cooper become uh this sort of shadowy elite power broker from behind the scenes who's able to control so much from the shadows and again kind of plays into this whole notion of um you know this sinister dark elite potentially uh you know in league with some kind of uh non-human or <clears throat> negative entity or something to that effect yeah well as we get into the home stretch here let's get into your take on twin peaks as a metaphor for the manhattan project i'm definitely curious to hear this well you know and i can't take credit for this uh i remember uh right before season three came out i found an article online it was translated from italian where a uh the, the argument was that every major um, surname in the show is a reference back to somebody who was involved with uh, with the Manhattan Project. 
you know, because uh, Lyman James Brig, Briggs, so the timing with the Briggs family, uh, was the director of Project Uranium, which did all the nuclear research and development that segued into the Manhattan Project. Uh, Johnson, you know, for Shelley and Leo uh, would be Lyndon Johnson, who, you know, uh, post Manhattan Project actively opposed the um, the the, the re resumption of nuclear testing, but he's in there. Uh, there was a UN General Assembly delegate for delegate for Harry Truman, who uh, supported Kennedy's decision to resume nuclear testing, and his name was John Sherman Cooper. Although I think Dale Cooper also has something to do with D.B. Cooper, but uh, there was a Lieutenant Hugh Ferguson, who was the co-pilot of Flight Crew C, which dropped the Nagasaki bomb on, uh, I think, August 9th, right, 1945. So that's ties in with Maddie Ferguson. Uh, Harry S. Truman is literally the name of the president who dropped the bomb. Uh, there's, you know, people can dig up this article, but they literally go through and like every single name that's used on the show has a direct corollary to people who were directly involved in, uh, in the Manhattan Project. You know, there was an E.N. Hurley, who was uh, one of the head scientists, uh, an E.A. Martell, who was another one of the atomic scientists. So there's, there's a lot. Um, and then, you know, at the heart of it all, there's, there's Bob, which, you know, could be construed as a reference to, to Oppenheimer. Uh, you know, he puts the RBT under, under the fingernails and stuff. Um, but Bob also is, you know, one M away from being bomb. And so I remember like reading that article and being like, oh, you know, that's, that's super wild. And then episode eight comes on and I'm like, oh crap, you know, like this is, this is, they're making it explicit. And then as the season kind of wore on, I sort of developed my big pet theory, which is that, you know, Lynch and Frost are drawing, drawing like a very clear argument for Manson and the bomb being like the two, you know, major catastrophic human events of the 20th century. And I think, you know, because they show, they show the atomic explosion out in the desert and then they show judy emerge from it and judy barfs up all these like things and one of the things that she barfs up is bob so it's very much to me like you know they're saying that the violation of you know of reality at the atomic level that we engaged in and that did something you know to toxify or release these entities into our reality which yeah then that ties back into Crowley and, 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 uh, and Parsons and, uh, you know, uh, Laura Dern's character, they, at one point in season three, they, they do her up to look exactly like Marjorie Cameron. So it all does seem like they're making the ingredients of their soup more explicit, right? As season three is going on and that it really does kind of come down to, to, to man, Charlie and the bomb sort of. Yeah, well, I mean, Lynch even seems to make that pretty overt when um is playing Gordon Cole. He appears in his office, like literally with that poster of the, the mushroom cloud, like right behind him, you know. Right. Uh, but yeah, that was definitely one of the most striking things to me about the season two was the general recurring theme throughout is how much our reality 
was transformed by the destruction of the first atomic bomb. Um, I kind of have wondered as well, too, if you were meant to interpret that as the catalyst for, um, you know, essentially the realities of the different dimensions starting to become unstuck and bleeding into one another, as it did seem like it had really fundamentally altered um, the course of uh, humanity, if you will. Uh, it's interesting, too, uh, in light of one of the theories that I had read uh, concerning the White Lodge. One notion that was put forth was that the White Lodge was actually Twin Peaks itself, uh, which is interesting in light of Sarah Palmer potentially being uh, the vessel in which Judy is inhabiting, because in many ways, Twin Peaks does kind of start out as this idealistic um, American small town that really encompasses arguably the best part of classic Americana, if you will. And then gradually over time, it starts to erode. And in some case, in some sense, I think that you are meant to interpret that uh, as being a result of Sarah Palmer's presence there and just the gradual corrupting influence that she has on the community by simply lingering there. I mean, you see it a little bit here and there. Um, you know, like I think that the scene at the bar where she ends up by biting that guy's face off or something like that. But yeah, it's just kind of curious with a lot of her scenes in the third season where she's just kind of randomly shown wandering around the community, going back to her house, and they make it clear that there's something inhabiting her. Uh, but I think that as a whole, it's just the fact that she's present there and that she has had this Mavlin influence on this idealistic setting over the years. And it's, I think, really driven home by I think the scene that you had alluded to earlier with Bobby in season three where that kid I think what finds his father's pistol or something like that in the back seat of the car and fires off around in the middle of uh, you know the road uh, the roadway right there next to the double R and it causes this traffic jam and yet the woman behind uh that vehicle was freaking out because they're late and all this other stuff and at one point bobby is just kind of standing back marveling at it you know here's this like parent who's just sort of randomly left a gun laying around for his son to find and he's so nonchalant and indifferent about it and then the people behind the vehicle don't even care that this kid might have killed himself or almost killed somebody else indirectly by firing the gun. And it's just, it's such a reflection, I think, on the general state that America is in now. And you see that apathy uh, that really increasingly started to, and uh, the generation that really had started to increasingly characterize small town America present in Twin Peaks, which was, I think, always meant to be the personification of this idealistic version of it that brought all the good and positive aspects to bear. And even now, it has been corrupted by these hostile forces that have invaded our reality as personified by Sarah Palmer. Um, and then also, too, I mean, it kind of goes into the fact that Vegas has become such a 
a bigger part of the show as well of course another thing too that had occurred to me uh, while we were discussing this but they did a lot of nuclear testing in nevada as well so it's kind of like another aspect of this um whereas when the show had originally aired maybe the reality for many americans was closer to that idealized world the twin peaks presented whereas by uh, 2017 when the show came back it was maybe closer to this las vegafied reality uh spiraling crime drug addiction social uh downward mobility all the other things that have uh, become so characteristic in 21st century America, along with the just, you know, absolute uh, disintegration of the family and the just in general kind of nomadic existence that people live now. Um, those, you know, the late 80s was really kind of the last time where you did have those sort of deep rooted American communities before the, um, you know, the housing bubble and opioid crisis and all this other good stuff finally did away with all that uh, do you have any thoughts I, I mean that's absolutely absolutely true you know and uh, to your first point i think in the show you're definitely seeing twin peaks you know come apart in an almost like lovecraftian kind of way right like uh even even the the, the bit with alicia witt and her her boyfriend the kid from get out you know and they're like all strung out in the uh, under these sequoia trees or these giant trees and stuff and and then uh kind of oh, like yeah and it's i were no that's so funny too because i think it, it's like the first or second episode where shelly's at the bar with like her girlfriends and she's talking about how she's worried about her daughter dating steve because uh you know she thinks he's putting her uh her on a bad path and then i think the other lady's like oh but everybody loves steve he's such a nice oh. boy and then you finally see him and he's it's like this scuzzy looking drug addict and it's like really they, they they think this guy looks like a good suitor or something like what the fuck yeah yeah and like i'm sure that actor's a very nice guy in real life or whatever but like anytime he pops up in a movie i'm just always like oh no this guy <laughs> like you know he really oozes kind of a kind of a you know negative kind of energy or whatever uh but and it's all it's all kind of given a great punchline in the the scene where they're 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 everybody's shooting up i think that street in vegas right and jim belushi's gangster character looks at the other gangster and he, you know and there's like vans smashing into houses and explosions are going off and everything he just looks at the other mobster and he's like people are under a lot of stress these days and it's like it's like yeah, yeah. No, I find, I find the depiction of the mitchum brothers particularly interesting as well in in season three the gangsters played by robert forrester and jim belushi because yeah normally they would be these sort of like kind of stereotypical heavy villains but in fact um they're actually some of the more likable characters in the entire third season it's it's kind of interesting how like they're depicted as having this sort of like rugged code of honor or something like that uh within their character whereas so many of these other people are just you know in contrast to like say richard horn who is just this malevolent cruel person who effectively hurts people for the sake of it there's at least a 
a code of conduct to the Mitchum brothers. Um, you know, they are violent, but I mean, they're also uh, quite sympathetic and compassionate to people that they care about as they demonstrate throughout the show. Yeah, they buy Cooper some pie. Well, they're really nice to the three, what they, the, the, um, the dance girls or something that are always following them around or something like that, too. I think it's kind of funny how they like dote on them almost throughout like the show. Um, there's just a lot of interesting little things like that that were thrown in with some of those characters. It's bottomless. Like it's, it's almost literally bottomless, the show, especially with season three, you know? Yeah, but I do think that the Manhattan Project and the explosion of the atomic bomb is such an integral part of that and how ultimately uh, it did affect our reality. And yeah, it seems that this is certainly a notion that uh, Frost and Lynch have put in a lot of stock in. Uh, I mean, you know, again, it's it's never really talked about before, but I can't help but feel that uh, one, if not both of them, but probably Red King Kill 33 a time or two as well. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Lynch, of course, I mean, he's had Marilyn Manson, and I know at least Lost Highway Manson even did a song based on that. So, I mean, I would be shocked if Lynch is not familiar with it in some capacity. But um, that was a major component of it was the splitting of primordial matter as personified by the atomic bomb. Uh, and then also, as you had alluded to before, there's also the fascination with the Kennedys, uh, which was also a big part of um James Shelby Donard's premise with the killing of the Divine King and JFK being a stand-in for that. So who knows? And you consider, I'm sure, you know, Lynch's age when the Kennedy assassination took place, I'm sure it was, you know, his 9-11, it was probably a pretty big, (laughs) a pretty big event, you know, for him at the time. Yeah, it's like, it's all in there. And it's, it's so strange to see the nuclear thing made explicit in season three and then consider the fact that like, this was on their mind all the way back when they named all the characters in the story, you know, back in the, in the late eighties, just, just to show that it's not like a retconned thing. It's not like that. They were like, Oh, we're going to go in this nuclear route. It was like, it was always like lurking inside the the text, you know, sort of. Yeah. I was just thinking too, the Kennedy references are also interesting in the context of the loss of innocence as well, because that was, you know, as you'd alluded to before the JFK assassination and then, to a lesser extent, the RFK one and the other assassinations that occurred around the time of his were, again, pivotal events in America's loss of innocence for a lot of people that, you know, kind of idealized uh, time frame that America had in the middle part of the 20th century really ended with the Kennedy assassination. Others point to the Manson killings, but either or, uh, I think, make a lot of sense in that regard. But Certainly, I think those two events did fundamentally shift the zygust in the country much the same way that the uh, the rise of the bomb earlier had as well. And the whole culture of mutually assured destruction and what have you, which once again is becoming another thing, a thing again. So, yeah, we've kind of left season three even in the dust as far as like our reality goes. <laughs> like, yeah, it's like... no, I, I, yeah, that was like what another thing that just struck me about it and rewatching it. Um, you know, some of this stuff would I remember just seemed really, really far out in 2017. But now going back rewatching in 2023, I was like, hey, you know, it doesn't really seem as strange as I remember it. But then again, our world is so much weirder now than it was in 2017. So, yeah, yeah, it all seems very like 
yeah, can we go back to 2017 kind of thing? But yeah. Yeah, 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 really. Yeah. Well, in 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 even just on the in, on the the Kennedy front, you know, there's all kinds of Camelot, not not Kennedy Camelot, but like actual Camelot, you know, in the naming of things on the show and stuff. Yeah, and like the Sherwood like, Forest or something like that, and what there's Glastonbury a Glastonbury Grove. Grove. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, there's definitely a lot of the uh, the Arthurian mythos, and just, yeah, so much of that stuff present in the show. Totally. Um, oh, do you have any thoughts on the Thunderbirds in season three? That was another thing that had really jumped out to me. I don't know if you noticed that, but a lot of characters are shown just sort of randomly with Thunderbirds. I mean, Hawk, of course, has one in his office. I'm pretty sure uh, Benjamin Horn has a huge Thunderbird relief uh, painted on the back of his office. And I think one or two of the other characters just sort of randomly had Thunderbird figurines or something in their houses too, if I'm not mistaken. I did not notice that. And I'm, to be honest, I'm not sure what would be, do you, what, do you know what that would mean? Well, I, the Thunderbird is usually associated allegedly in uh, Native American mythos with uh, the upper world. Um, you know, you would have, like, for instance, in sort of the woodland, the eastern woodlands and sort of going into the, the mythos around like the Adena and the Hopewell, uh, this would have been around you know, throughout kind of the northwestern United States into the Ohio Valley and so forth. But there was a, a rough conception among many of the tribes of the world kind of existing in three levels where you had the underworld, uh, which was the dominion of the, the you know, the great serpent, Middle Earth. Uh, which is the reality that we inhabited and then there was um the upper world which was the, the sky uh, which was the dominion of the thunderbirds and then there was also uh, the other world which was kind of seen as a a mirror universe if you will which i, I kind of think is what the black lodge in a sense is almost supposed to represent in twin peaks uh, but i thought that that was sort of interesting that you do see a lot of these random references to the thunderbirds throughout the show without ever really explaining that even though i would interpret the thunderbird as being more connected uh, to the white lodge if anything uh, so i had wondered you know if this mean that does this mean that these characters are uh they've somehow achieved a communion with it or something like that i mean in benjamin horn's case that's maybe a little difficult to believe but then conversely he does seem like he's changed considerably in the return as well i know there's the one scene where he's chastising his brother for um <laughs> making some rather sexist remarks about his new secretary so who knows um but yeah it's i want to say there might be a thunderbird maybe around Janie or uh, whatever Ducky's wife's name or something like that but yeah I just had randomly noticed a couple of Thunderbirds spread throughout the show which is a very loaded symbol but again they never really uh draw attention to it that's fascinating I didn't I didn't notice that but yeah it's, it certainly makes sense with Hawk and and I yeah I think you're right I think they're implying that uh that Ben Horn has undergone some sort of a conversion or something after his head injury at the end of season two or something uh man on the topic too of like other realities are shifting in and out like i i was thinking earlier about jerry horn because the whole thing with him gets so weird about midway through 
the season where he gets like lost in the woods or something like that why he's stoned and then what he ends up like in jackson hole or something like that like in wyoming and then they never like explain any of that like how the hell did he just you know he's wandering around in the woods and then suddenly he ends up in like wyoming or something like that right i mean i remember what my interpretation of those scenes was at the time was that it was you know lynch having fun with uh the the viewership's mental state at that point in the in the show and just being like where are we what the hell's going on here when is Cooper going to come back? You know, kind of like expressing that and having fun with what he knew he was doing to viewer expectations. But, you know, that was, that was just my thought at the time. Yeah. I just thought that that was so strange that he somehow ends up like in Wyoming. But again, like I, I, I can't help but wonder too, if maybe Jerry had ended up wandering into like the black lodge or something and then it had been transported or something of course for we, sure we can't forget the whole thing too with the the subplot with matthew um lord's character and the the ruth davenport character um where they travel into like what the zone or something like that and uh they encounter major briggs and that's like another weird one too because i that if i remember correctly they actually created like an old school 1990s style website chronicling what uh, those characters were doing in the show and then they just sort of like randomly put it online like it was um you know an actual website that had been up since like 1996 or something like that totally i completely forgot about that but they're totally what well, you could go to it like on your computer yeah no you absolutely could so again that's like another way where i just i think the show was having a lot of fun toying with our different perceptions of reality in addition to as i said before i think deliberately alluding to some of the franchises that had come afterwards that had inspired it such as the x-files and maybe even like riverdale possibly so yeah there's just and then of course we can't forget to the um the books that mark frost wrote uh, as tie-ins um which i highly recommend uh, for those of you listening if you haven't read them you should because it's it's fascinating i mean frost basically goes through a whole retelling of american history going back right to like lewis and clark and things like that and uh, so it's there was, I think, a lot more ambition, to put it mildly, behind what Frost and Lynch had been trying to do with Twin Peaks, uh, especially since it returned, than a lot of people realize. Yeah, it's really, it's overwhelming. And I remember, you know, so there's some passage in the first of those Frost books where I believe it's like Major Briggs writing, and he starts theorizing about, like, what these enti- these lodge entities are, and he ties it into, like, that they're, like, an interdimensional alien intelligence and stuff. And they view us as no more significant than like insects. I can't remember where it was in the book, but it's in there. And I remember just being like terrifying, like really, really good, scary writing, you know? Absolutely. Well, Jay's a bonus question here before we sign off. Uh, Do you think we'll ever see Twin Peaks season four? That's an interesting question. You know, I, uh, there was that whole wisteria project, right. That he was, that he was gearing up for right before lockdown. And, uh, 
people close to him were posting about it. I think like the guy who plays Hawk posted about it and Dern posted about it and McLaughlin maybe. And then that died down with, with the, with the COVID thing, but he, I believe they, they uh, started talking about it again. And whether that's some other project or Twin Peaks season four, I'm, I'm, I believe in being optimistic. You know, I remember telling a buddy of mine, there were some weird tweets from McLaughlin and Frost. And I was like, they're going to totally do season three. And he was like, there's no way they're doing season three. And then they did. So I, I would love to go back and see a fourth season and have my uh, already confounded sensibilities, you know, further fucked with so that I'm like, I don't even, you know, I'm kind of already like that. Like with the end of season three, it's like, it's so, it's so perplexing, but why not going back in and, and make it worse again? Yeah, I'm kind of torn because I, I feel in some ways it was the perfect uh, note to really end the franchise on. But then conversely, I mean, I definitely think that if they were to go back and do uh, another version of it or another season, uh, they would definitely find some compelling thing to do with it. But yeah, yeah. You never know. I had really dismissed the possibility that there would be another season um, after so many of the actors had died, whereas it kind of seemed like miraculously with season three, a lot of them, even those that were quite old, were still hanging on and were able to film scenes. Uh, a lot of them have now uh, departed, but nonetheless, um, it seems like there have uh, been periodical rumblings here and there that a fourth season has been discussed at least by frost and lynch so who knows um i would have to think though it would it would have to be fairly soon because my goodness um i don't think people really appreciate what a herculean effort twin peaks season three must have been for david lynch besides producing and co-writing it uh you know I mean, he directed 18 episodes in that i mean that's the equivalent of like nine feature films i mean i know directors have directed entire seasons of tv franchises before it's not unheard of uh in fact i think that was the case with like the first season of true detective but typically that's like you know as, as a season that's running maybe six eight you know 10 episodes or something like that directing 18 straight episodes is pretty nuts uh, so I would have to imagine uh, at his age and knowing that Lynch would almost surely want to have that kind of a uh, personal involvement. And, in I mean, even just looking at the credits going back, I mean, he was involved like with the sound editing and um, you really got the sense behind the scenes. It was a fairly small crew. I mean, more of a, a family affair, but for him to continue doing that, I would have to think it would be probably in the next couple of years while he's still able to um, have the stamina for that kind of work. Yeah, I mean, he he was he's starting to sound kind of hoarse in some of those uh, daily weather reports and stuff, you know. Uh, did you watch any of the the like the the behind the scenes extras on like the uh, on season three? Uh, no, no, I still haven't gotten around to that yet. Uh, was there anything juicy in there? It just it looks like it was a pretty harrowing. You know, you can sense the exhaustion on him and not everybody, but it's just like man, like you said, it's just a ton of work to to do something like that i can't i cannot imagine 
yeah because i mean i think they i mean granted they did spend i think a year or two working on it but still that's again shooting the equivalent of nine feature length movies in the span of two years is still that's impressive <laughs> no matter how you want to slice it that that's impressive <laughs> yeah it's nuts totally nuts um, well jay sir uh, it's been an absolutely fascinating chat did you uh, have anything else you wanted to add here before we sign off I mean, I, I'm, you know, it, it's all, it's all uh, rabbit holes, you know, like we could talk about watching episodes on two different TVs. Like they say you're supposed to do, you're supposed to watch 17 and 18 together or different sequences together. There's so much stuff. We should probably stop. Yeah, no, otherwise we'll be here probably all night. Yeah. Well, all right, sir. On that note, then, I guess we will sign off. Uh, as always, I want to thank you guys so much for listening and your support. And with that, good night and good luck to you all.